Rob Henderson, welcome to the show. Armin, great to be here. Glad to have you on. I check your material regularly. I am checking it way too often on Twitter. <laughs> I am reading it. You have great tweets, a lot of insight. It's so valuable. You post a lot. Then you have your newsletter. Value across the board. You're one of the few people that makes subscriptions make sense mm. on the internet. And then now you have a book that is coming, which is Troubled. Mm-hmm. Before we get into all of that, how do you traverse through the world? How yeah. do you describe how Rob Henderson travels through the world? How I travel through the world? Uh, I mean, in terms of how I arrived at this point, I mean, it's I can give you the sort of short version. And yeah, we can see where it goes. You can ask, you know, specific points. But, you know, right now I'm based in... Cambridge, England. I did a PhD at the University of Cambridge, uh, finished a little over a year ago. Uh, Before that, I did a degree at Yale. um, And before my experiences at these universities and as a, you know, a writer and someone with some online presence, you know, my life was a lot different. Uh, So my book Troubled covers the sort of you know what I've what I've described it on my Substack as like the first thirty one years of my life with all the boring parts removed. It's just sort of the most vivid stories and recollections from being born into poverty in Los Angeles. Um, I never knew my father. I, um, you know, the first three years of my life, I lived with my birth mother. She didn't know who my father was either. You know, I, a lot of this information I got from documents from social workers later as an adult, sort of trying to piece together those early years of my life. Um, and so, you know, my mother and I lived in a car. We were homeless for a time. Eventually, we settled in this slum apartment out in Los Angeles. And yeah, she was very heavily addicted to drugs and was just mentally not in a position to take care of me, very neglectful. Um, you know, at a certain point, uh, the police were called because so my mom would basically tie me to, you know, I was three years old. She would tie me to this chair with a bathrobe belt while she would be in her room getting high or she would be you know, she would have various people over, a lot of men come over to the apartment and she would trade favors for drugs. Um, so eventually some neighbors heard me screaming, struggling to break free from this chair and the police arrived and saw the kind of squalor and disorder of this apartment and, you know, took me into foster care. My mother, uh, was, she was from South Korea. She came to the U S as a young woman. She was deported back to Seoul. Um, and yeah, I had no information about my father until later as an adult, um, I took a 23andMe DNA test and, you know, my whole life, I didn't know, you know, my father, his ancestry, his ethnicity, anything. So this 23andMe, you know, I get these results and it turns out my father is, uh, he's Mexican with ancestry from, you know, it's, you know, the, the way the 23andMe results break down, it's like, you know, in indigenous North American something, and then Spain. And, you know, I, I mean, I was born in LA and I showed my results to a geneticist friend of mine. And he was like, yeah, I mean, your dad, he's mestizo. He's probably Mexican. And so that was my, my father's side. I didn't, I had no idea about this growing up, um, this sort of side of my ancestry. Um, anyway, so I spent the next several years living in different foster homes in Los Angeles, lived in seven different homes in LA, um, later was adopted. We settled into this dusty kind of working class town in Northern California. But there was, you know, there were divorces and separations and all this sort of family drama after I was adopted, where I sort of got, you know, I I talk a lot in the book about this. I mean, it gave me sort of this front row seat to what was happening in 
like rural sort of, you know, this is Northern California, kind of a rural working class environment in the late 90s and early 2000s, you know, sort of the glimpses into what was happening with with opioids and addiction and and domestic abuse and divorce and sort of what's happening in this sort of bottom segment of society that often gets overlooked. Um, And, you know, then from there, I enlisted in the military, uh, joined the Air Force when I was 17. And then from there, you know, there were some setbacks and hiccups and so on. But eventually I found my way into college and kind of left those very sort of uh, upsetting and and chaotic environments. And so the book just covers that story, the lessons I learned, uh, my observations of where I came from, and then my experiences at elite universities and what I witnessed there, um, you know, kind of witnessed, this was 2015 when I arrived at Yale, so sort of the, the birth of what is now called wokeness and this new sort of politically correct movement on campus. Um, and sort of my thoughts and reflections on that. And then I just, you know, it's a sort of a sweeping, sweeping book about you know, this very kind of strange life that I've lived. It is a strange one, but not really. We all have a strange one in some way. When I was reading it, some parts of it made me sad. I connected with it. It was actually saddening, which is not common for me when I read a book. And part of the reason for that was the level of detail that you brought to the parts. You remember the story. How did you get the detail of all the scenarios? Because each one you're like, I'm there. Okay, now I'm there. Now I'm there. How did you remember all that? I remember when I first um, signed to do this book and then sort of realizing what it would entail, you know, because I'd written, you know, I, I had a newsletter at that time. I, I'd written sort of op-eds and different things for different outlets, but this is, you know, a thousand words, 1500 words, but then a book is 80,000 words. And when I realized how, I mean, in my mind, this task just seemed impossible. Um, you know, so I talked to other authors and tried to sort of get a sense of how to actually approach this book. And finally, there was one author who told me, um, you know, the question for memoir isn't who am I, but who am I in this story? And for whatever reason, that unlocked, you know, that unlocked something for me where I realized, like, you know, I'm not writing a book sort of retrospectively saying, oh, you know, here's here are my thoughts about these events or sort of, you know, this this account of, you know, as an adult speaking about or, or you know, offering commentary about these environments, but rather what I needed to do was to sort of go back to that time and offer some perspective from the eyes of a young person going through these. So as a, as a child, so what each chapter does is sort of, I describe my experiences from that specific age. So, you know, age three living with my birth mother or age seven living in the foster homes or 17 growing up in Red Bluff, California, or, you know, my early late teens, early 20s in the military. And so what I try to do is, you know, here's what I remember from this time. And here's the sort of firsthand account of people I was interacting with and what, you know, what a day in the life was like here and some of the more sort of vivid memories that I had. It was hard. I mean, it was hard to remember everything. I would, I, you know, I went back and spoke with some of my old friends when I was growing up. I talked to my adoptive sister. Uh, she and I grew up together later um, after I was adopted. I spoke with, you know, just family and friends. I also like, you know, this was, this was during the lockdown initially when I was writing it. Um, but then, you know, I, so, so what I would, I would like buy food that I was eating as a kid. Um, I would listen to the music of that time. I'd listen to whatever Biggie or Tupac, or I'd eat like cheap, you know, generic pop tarts from Walmart, or, you know, I was trying to sort of re, you know, sort of, I wanted to smell and taste and hear and just sort of bring myself back to those, those periods. Um, and 
you know, that, that was effective actually to sort of spark and rekindle those memories. There was a period where I was like, you know, I'd be sleeping and then like I dream of a memory from when I was 12 and I'm like, man, I haven't thought about that in years. Like I forgot about that. And so I'd like bolt awake at two or 3 AM and like run to my laptop. I had to get this down before I forget, before I, you know, and I would corroborate it, you know, like anytime something happened with like a family member, I was like, you know, do, do you remember it this way? And most of it, you know, most of the accounts aligned, there were like, it was weird. There were like minor details that were different where I'd ask like my adoptive mom, I would say, Hey, do you remember when you and I had that conversation? Um, we were sitting in the car and it was like, you know, after dark and, and, and my mom would say like, well, we had that conversation, but we were actually sitting on a porch and it was the afternoon and the sun was shining. Like, okay, so we remember the same conversation, but like the peripheral details were a bit different where I thought, you know, we're in a car. She's like, okay, but the, the conversation was more or less the same. Um, so that was actually nice to know that like, okay, I know memory is flawed, but at least like this is you know, as close to the truth as, you know, a subjective recollective account could, could probably be. Um, and so, yeah, it was, you know, just, just a, a lot of sort of thinking and reflecting and playing these little sort of tricks with my senses, with the food and the music and everything. And it ended up being pretty effective. I would agree because when I was reading it, the effectiveness was transmitted. Hmm. The smells and the music was very noticeable, especially the music in the book. Cause I know all the songs you mentioned, so I'm connecting with the exact actual category. Usually when there's references in something, I don't connect with the movies or the music, but in this case, anything you were mentioning. Space Jam. Kazam, Space Jam. Oh, yeah, yeah. Forgot about uh, Dre. Bone Thugs and Harmony. Bone forgot about Dre. Yeah, yeah, dude. I mean, those were like, music was just better back then. I was like, I, cause I had this Spotify playlist that I would go to like play music from, you know, 1999 to 2002 or whatever. And I'm like, man, the music was so good back then. And now it's, you know, it's but but uh, this happens, you know, like if, if you read research on like the psychology of sort of music preferences and stuff, usually our music preferences tend to sort of harden and cement like in the early adolescent years. And so like, OK, that was like when I was but five, like I still think objectively the music was better. <laughs> I have rapped on a lot of the beats of the music that you mentioned in the I freestyle a lot. So All right. Or I okay. used to do a lot more. So okay, it, was, cool. it was a nice connection when I started. All right. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Now, you mentioned adolescence, those early years, how... You mentioned in the book later on that you would give up your 1% success academically or whatnot to not have the 1% level anguish of the early years. How impactful are those early years, like 0 to 5, 0 to 10? Is that once somebody goes through that, is it like burned in? What do you think about that? Um, yeah, I mean, so the, yeah, this is a point that I made in the in my book was that you know, there's there's a lot of discussion in the U.S. about upward social mobility, about how to get more kids from deprived backgrounds into college and get them into higher paying jobs and sort of concentration on inequality and poverty, which, you know, and, and I make this point, too, which is that like those are those are good goals. Like, I'm not saying we should discount that or ignore it, but I just think it's it, it does to some extent mm, sort of gloss over more important questions about what are we actually aiming for here? Is it to just, you know, get more people with bachelor's degrees or is it to actually ensure that people are healthy and happy and uh, to improve their well-being, life satisfaction, those things. And for a lot of kids, I mean, regardless of whatever, wherever they end up in their lives, whether, you know, uh, whether they do achieve upward mobility or not, they're still going to be carrying the wounds or in the best case scenario the scars of their early childhood like the guys that i grew up with 
whether in foster homes or just in more sort of, you know, typical chaotic environments with single moms or multiple step parents or just like living with a grandmother because, you know, their dad is in prison and their mom, you know, went on a bender and is now addicted. I mean, those were very common stories where I grew up um, in California. And so, you know, one line that I that I write is that, you know, even if every so even if every foster kid goes on to have the same life as me, you know, they're still yeah, they're still going to be dealing with those very upsetting early life experiences. And so when you look at the developmental psychology research, the first five to seven years of a person's life are, are critical in terms of how they go on to form attachments or how they feel about themselves, their um, beliefs, their level of inner resources, how confident they feel that they can accomplish tasks in the world, whether they go on to have healthy and successful romantic relationships, whether they go on to trust or be more suspicious of others, their friends, their family, their, yeah. And so relationships are critical for happiness, how kids are raised, how safe and secure they feel when they're growing up. Those are critical. And so for someone like me, I mean, I had a lot of the sort of the raw ingredients were in place for me to maybe go on to college or maybe go on to, you know, achieve those sort of conventional metrics of success. But, um, I was weighed down by so many upsetting and, uh, difficult early life experiences that even for someone like me, it took a lot of work, a lot of sort of um, focus and and repair and healing and all of these things before I finally got to a point where I believed in myself enough to go on to actually do the things that I wanted to do in my life. Um, you know, there are reasons why a lot of, you know, apparently bright and curious kids and teenagers engage in self-defeating behaviors or, um you know, seem to intentionally uh, commit actions that they know that they'll regret later. I mean, that's the thing, right? Like, even if, even under the best of circumstances, you know, it's still hard to make good decisions. Like, even if everything is going in your favor, sometimes it's still hard to do the thing that you know you should do. I mean, I, I think I have this simple example somewhere in the book, um, or this might have been in a Substack post, where I basically said, like, everyone knows, for example, that vegetables are good for you. You know, the knowledge is there. We all know this. Um, but... For whatever, you know, people will still order the fries instead of the side salad. Everyone knows smoking is bad for them, but they'll still smoke. I mean, you can have the knowledge and the information, but if you don't have the right sort of incentives and structures and positive environment and positive influences and so on, then it's very easy to just sort of fall into this pattern of making bad choices. And so, you know, I kind of sum it up by saying that, you know, when you're a kid and adults repeatedly let you down, eventually uh, you start learning to let yourself down. And that's that's what happened. A punchy statement that is in the book and very accurate because that's what you're getting. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing that came to mind while you're describing this is care. Mm -hmm. When you're young, you're looking for some sort of care or love. You may not have had that many examples of it in your youth. I remember one that you brought up with a girl when you went to the new house and she's like, you can play with my toys. Mm -hmm. You can have them. And it's like, oh, wow, this is what a warm... What a warm moment you look for those kinds of things and it gives you like, oh, I do matter. And that contributes to the belief in self, which also, I think, contributes to more of an internal locus of control than external. I think what are your thoughts on reaching for care as a person? And then which also connects to later in life, you reach for status and uh, authority so that you feel acceptance. It's almost like another form of care there. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. So that was, yeah, my adoptive sister after, you know, shortly after I was adopted, 
she gave me some of her toys and she was just like really nice to me. And, um, you know, like when I was in the foster homes, I never had toys. There was a, like, I remember at one time I moved to a foster home and I found this, um, this toy from the Mighty Ducks. Uh, it was a, it was a Mighty Ducks hockey puck. You know, my, these were like popular movies in the nineties. It was from a McDonald's Happy Meal and it was some kid that had left it under some previous foster kid who left, left it under this bed. I had it for a little while. We played with it. We were playing street hockey with it. Me and this, this girl across the street, we ended up, you know, busting it. It was like kind of already brittle and we ended up breaking it. But that was the one kind of toy that I did not have for very long, but otherwise no toys. Um, and so, yeah, those moments of kindness stuck with me, you know, my, yeah, just, they were very fleeting, very rare. Uh, later, you know, I, I do think like some people will try to, and I think to some extent I tried to do this too, is like you're chasing success, you're chasing whatever it is, money or promotions or validation in some way to sort of make up for those things. One thing that I, you know, it's, it's been, it's been surprising and, and gratifying to see actually is like, I wondered who would connect with this book, you know, is it like there would, would, you know, the kind of book reading public people who maybe didn't have the same kind of life experience as me, would they, would they connect with it in the same way? And what I'm finding is like a lot of people are, and I think that's because like, you know, I could talk to a friend of mine the other day, he read this, my book and he was like, you know, when I was growing up, you know, he grew up like kind of middle, upper middle class. And he said his parents, all they seemed to care about was that he and his brother would go to college and it was like extracurriculars and, you know, practice and all these, all these kinds of things, you know, checking the right boxes and he said, like, I felt like very little, like, love or warmth from my parents. It was like every decision was optimized for, is you know, the, the binary, you know, is this going to get you into college, yes or no? And that's all, every, you know, it was like that was the whole, you know, outlook of, of the family. And so, he, and he ended up did, you know, he and his brother went to good colleges, got good paying jobs. They're, you know, on paper, their resumes, they're very successful. But they have, like, this ambivalent relationship with their parents and how they view friendship and relationships and you know, like they, they tried to achieve success in some part, hoping to maybe win the affection of their parents. Like, you know, I did the thing you wanted to do, but it actually, it feels very hollow. It feels very transactional. It doesn't actually satisfy that feeling. And, you know, it was, it was, at first it was surprising, but I understood it. Like I understood that, you know, even if you don't have the same kind of, you know, outsized pronounced levels of drama that, that I had just, you know, that those early life relationships you have with your family do set a template for how you view yourself and others in the world. And so it's been, yeah, it's been interesting to see that, that people, you know, you don't have to grow up poor to have these experiences. I, I make that point in the book somewhere that, you know, a lot of people who grow up rich will at least attempt to imagine what it's like to be poor. You know, they, they try to take on the perspective of someone who grew up in poverty. I've never met anyone who grew up with, you know, relatively happy family lives, you know, in a, in a you know, with, with their parents uh, who have tried to imagine what it would be like to grow up without them. Um, and so I think that in the same way that when you grow up rich, you take wealth for granted, when you grow up with you know, a happy, loving family, you learn to take that for granted too, and you don't even consider what it would be like for people who didn't have that and the sort of downstream effects that could have. And it's interesting to me that we'll, you know, we'll focus on the sort of economic poverty, but not the sort of social and emotional poverty of kids who lack, you know, stability and security in their, in their early lives. You're bringing up very important points of not hitting the main thing that's important to a person for well-being. So it's sort of like the parent that says, if you do this and this and this, they're coming from a place of, well, I would have wanted to do this, this and this. I put that on you now. That will give you the stability I didn't have. 
but there's a bit of a disconnect because you don't exist in that. It's just this, this, and this, and you showed up and we need to put that on you and you should be good. And there's not really much of you in it. There's not, it's almost a disconnecting feature. And then, but to completely ignore it would be to say, oh, you're taking it for granted how they have set things up better for you. There's that conundrum back and forth. But is there something of a disconnect to it when you're, things are placed on you that you should meet these criteria, but it's not really asking you what speaks to you, where your energy comes from? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, those, it's, it's an important question. I mean, it's, yeah, it's hard. I mean, one of the, uh, yeah, I mean, just trying to check, check the boxes, trying to achieve those, those badges of success. It's, it, I mean, these aren't even like bad things to do, right? Like, I think they're, they're, you know, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes it's better than not having those things. But, um, you know, there's this, there's this line about how, what, what is it? What gets measured gets managed, you know, what, what can be, you know, counted and quantified. That's, you know, th those are the things that we optimize for. And especially people who work in like education policy or people who care about outcomes for, struggling kids or or people who are marginalized or impoverished in some ways just you know more degrees or you know more money or more success in some form that we can easily measure but there's this you know there's this other line that i like and some people attribute it to einstein i actually don't think you know it's like one of these apocryphal things you know there's this um there's this uh what is it called i think it's called like the churchill effect or something where like you know if there's a if there's a popular saying eventually it'll just get attributed to more and more famous people till eventually people are like oh that was churchill that was einstein that was you know but this line is um not everything that counts can be counted and not everything that can be counted counts and so this idea that you know just just because you can measure it doesn't mean it's important and and if something is important doesn't necessarily mean that it can be measured and i think something like like childhood subjective well-being for example like it's it's difficult to measure on the one you know because you can't like accurately necessarily measure like some five-year-olds level of well-being i think we're pretty good at knowing when a, when a kid's doing very badly though and we could also you know try to try to create situations in which that's um mitigated uh but you know it just seems like you know, a point that I make repeatedly in the book is there's just all, all of this concentration on economics and financial need. And again, those are important things. But, you know, if you look at the research in developmental and evolutionary psychology, and you want to know sort of what are the predictors for, uh, as, an, as, as a young adult, what are the predictors for substance abuse or incarceration or um, self-harm or you know, committing sort of you know, self-defeating or violent, uh, undesirable acts. The link between those behaviors and childhood poverty, it's pretty tenuous, actually. Um, you know, sometimes there's a weak correlation and sometimes there's no correlation at all between growing up poor and committing those kinds of acts. But what researchers consistently find is that childhood instability is a strong and uh, reliable predictor of undesirable actions later in life, regrettable actions later, you know, again, incarceration, substance abuse, and so forth. And so childhood instability is measured by um, things like how frequently you relocated as a young person growing up, whether you were raised by uh, two parents, whether you, uh, how frequently your parents sort of separated, remarried, how many different adults were moving in and out of your home, how much day-to-day -day uncertainty there was uh, in your life, how predictable it was. And so, 
you know, scoring high on those kinds of measures, which are kind of related. I mean, some people are familiar with the ACEs, the adverse childhood experiences. It's really, it's not quite the same thing, but it's similar to that. If you've had a lot of those experiences, that does predict uh, negative behaviors later in life. And so, you know, I took that, I took that childhood instability scale uh, and I scored well into the top 1% of most unstable childhoods in America, which is like kind of unsurprising, right? I lived like in, in total, like 10 different homes, you know, multiple, you know, foster homes, divorces separate. There's just a lot of drama that I talk about in the book. And so I make this point that, you know, I'm, I'm roughly in the top 1% in terms of like educational attainment, you know, with a PhD from a fancy college and so on. Um, but I would gladly trade my position in the top 1% of, you know, whatever, like success stories for social mobility for, to have never been in the top 1% of most unstable homes. Um, I don't think the trade-off is worth it. People use this, um, you know, they, they, people who've had, you know, some, some transform, transformative experiences or, you know, these journeys, some people will say, you know, I'm, I'm glad that I went through everything I did because it made me who I am today. And it's a nice line and I understand it. And there was a period where I really wanted to believe that, but ultimately I just, at least in my case, and I think for a lot of kids who grew up the way that I did, and even if they, you know, they had successful lives, I, I think that they, the trade-off isn't worth it. You know, I, I actually disagree with that, that sentiment, even though it, it can be true for any particular person. I think though, in general, it's actually not true that if you, you know, if given the choice, I'd rather not, you know, I, I would rather have, you know, some people say, they've told me like, Rob, you had such a unusual story and it probably built a lot of character and i would say you know I'd, I'd i'd rather have a little less character and had a little bit better of a of a childhood so. that resonates strongly with me i've had some level of chaos as well in youth and gave me some superpowers later i would say hmm. but i've thought about the same was it would i go back to the way i was beforehand i would give up my superpowers Hmm. to go back but I, I wouldn't want to give them up now now that i have them and those things happen <laughs> yeah, yeah. i'll take them and go yeah but it was there was more of a wholeness before that hmm. that was nice and you can't really get that back once it's not there you don't have that same wholeness it has a little bit of that concept of like a glass that broke and then you can tape it back together but it doesn't hold water anymore hmm. it just it's not the same mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's kind of like, and then I wonder where are the trade-offs that are worth it? They say for, I was talking with somebody recently about for relationships. Let's say you had a relationship for half a year, a year, and it was great. And then it ended roughly. And then now you're in a less joyous state, maybe for an extended period of time. Is it better to have loved and have lost than to not at all in that case? Maybe, maybe not. How do you decide these trade-offs of early life chaos, later superpower, a lot of experience, uh, it ended, would you have done it in the first place at all? I mean, the, so, so it's interesting. I think for like the relation, like the romantic relationship example, it's a, it's an interesting one. I think it's a good actually way to think about this because I think that if you, you know, as a, as an adult or as, as a person with agency, if you enter a situation or make a decision with some knowledge of, uh, you know, some awareness that it may not go the way that you want it to go. I think that's one thing and and maybe it is better you know because you you made a decision and you learned to live with the consequences and you know maybe you can use the outcome of that decision to sort of inform future behavior future ideas thinking and 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 future actions but i think for for uh, a child like you don't you don't make that choice right like you're bored you're thrown into the world and you didn't get to decide who you know you're just um 
you know, you, you have no real agency, you have no power over your life. I mean, that was something that I, I discuss when I enlisted in the military. I mean, there were a lot of reasons why I did that, but one was just like, you know, finally I can make my own decision, you know, like my whole life, I, my, you know, every, every sort of aspect of my life had been controlled by social workers and, you know, uh, uh, teachers and foster parents and adoptive parents and all of these people who maybe in the moment at, at some level may have at least thought of my best interests, but ultimately, you know, it ended up going in a very bad direction and, you know, just feeling extremely unhappy for most of my uh, upbringing that I could finally make this decision. And what's really funny though, is that like, you know, I made this decision, but this, I guess this sort of does circle back to this point that I made about like, if you're going to make the decision and even if the outcome doesn't go the way you want, or it's like less than optimal, at least you made the call and you can use this to inform your life is that when I joined the military, it was like, uh, you know, again, my, my choices were stripped from me and I was being controlled again <laughs> because the military is this vast bureaucratic, strong, rigid, just every aspect of your life is tightly controlled. But in a way that was actually good for me um, because it was controlled in a way that was would allow me to sort of develop and grow and learn good habits and skills and self-discipline and the mindset required to accomplish hard things. Um, and so, and it was, it was my call, right? Like it was, it was weird. Like there were, especially like the first couple of years, it's just miserable as like brand new recruit, just everything just sucks, man. Like your, your life, your, your, is your uniform perfect? Is your room clean? Is your bed made? Is your, every little thing has to be perfect uh, when you're in training. And then, you know, so I hated it, but you know, in the back of my mind, I was like, well, you, you did this, <laughs> like, this is your fault. It was like, and in a way that was almost like, okay, you know, like, fine, like, you know, I'm the one who did this, I'm responsible. And it was almost relief in a way that like, I'm the one who rather than like being in, trapped in a, you know, another foster home that you didn't want to go to that you had no say in that you just had all of your agency stripped from you. Whereas in the military it was the, the reverse where like, yeah, maybe I wasn't as informed as I could have been or should have been when I signed up, but you know, this was my choice and I'm going to make the most of it. Um, so it's just kind of different, different ways to think about it. Strong point on agents agency there. We want to feel like we are causing the thing, whether we are in a free will or determined world, we do feel like we are toward that. Like, okay, I caused this versus it just happened to me. It was out of my hands. Like I'm just the, I thought about like the audience versus the person on stage. If you're in the audience, you can be replaced because anybody could just get things coming at them. But if you're on stage, you mm. can't be replaced. Everybody went to the show for that person. Yeah. So it's not as inspiring. You could put the other person there. So mm. are you really that relevant right there? Yeah. Well, even even just the ha having like even if you don't exert the agency or the control, even just having the the option available can it seems to have some effect. I mean, there's a really there was a really cool study um, decades ago, um, which basically so so these researchers created kind of two conditions uh, and in one condition they had these participants uh, perform a moderately difficult task with uh, an obnoxious alarm blaring in the background and they just asked them you know there's this alarm and we're just going to ask you to like solve this puzzle essentially um, and in the other condition it was the same where they told these participants you know obnoxious alarm in the background we're going to ask you to solve this moderately difficult task but they told them look there's a button over there by that desk. And if the alarm, if the noise gets to be too much, you press the button and it'll stop. But we really need you to at least attempt, right? We would like for you to try to accomplish the task with the alarm going. This is part of the study, but if you really need to, you can press the button. 
nobody pressed the button. They still attempted to solve the task. Nobody pressed the button. And what they found was that the second group outperformed the first group, despite the objective conditions being the same, right? Like both groups had this alarm in the background and they had to solve the task. And again, in the second group, nobody pushed the button, but having the knowledge that they could stop the, you know, what the researchers call the unpleasant stimulus, just knowing that they could eliminate it was enough for their, their minds to be settled to the point where they could concentrate on something and accomplish it. I just think like, you know, having having a bit of that control and agency, even if you don't exercise it, but knowing that you could, even that has some, you know, non-trivial effect on our on our lives. I think it's, you know, this is just a simple um, project, a simple task, but I think it's intuitively understandable for, for every sort of decision we make or, or circumstance we find ourselves in. We want to increase that feeling. If we don't have it, we want to get it. And if we do have some of it, we want to expand on that because we mm -hmm. like the feeling of that. Like, mm -hmm. oh, okay, I have a choice here. I could do that. Even if I don't do all the options, option three, all right, I could reach for it too. Okay, cool. Mm -hmm. Versus I have to be hit, hit repeatedly and then uh, it's out of my hands somewhat. Mm -hmm. It's not very inspiring or motivating. Where did you most develop optionality? One was when you went to the military. How else have you developed that so you have more belief in yourself? What points? Yeah, I mean, there were there were sort of different points even before the military where, you know, I, I realized like there was a connection between effort and focus and concentration and positive outcomes. Um, you know, but it was so rare that I would actually notice those connections, especially as a kid, because there weren't many adults around. There was not a lot of supervision, but I did for a time. Uh, I was I was at this boxing gym, so the coach taught Muay Thai and, and boxing, and I would go there, and I would like you know after after six months or a year, and I noticed like my body was changing and my concentration was increased, and I just felt like a more capable person through sort of going to practice and going through those training sessions. Um, so I think like that was probably one of the early moments where I realized this. Um, I mean, others, I mean, there was, you know, like, like I, the mil the military was an important one too, was, you know, one thing that I learned there was this distinction between motivation versus self-discipline, which was that, you know, especially when I was a teenager or, and, and you know, you sort of, you, you hear this kind of in your day-to-day -day life or, you, you know, maybe you've experienced it too, which is, you know, you want to do something, maybe you want to go to the gym or you want to go to work or you want to, you know, do your side hustle or something, but you don't feel motivated. You know, I lack motivation. I don't feel motivated. But what I learned when I was in the Air Force was that self-discipline is more important than motivation because motivation is just a feeling. Motivation just lives up here, just in your, you know, it's just an internal state. But self-discipline is I'm going to do this regardless of how I feel. And what really matters in the world is your actions. What are you actually propelling yourself forward to do even if inside you're like i don't feel motivated i don't want to i don't want to go to the gym i don't want to work out but you know in terms of like w you know observable real world effects it doesn't matter what you're thinking or what you're feeling it's like are you in the gym regardless of how miserable you feel and you know you string enough of those days together and you know you'll be in better shape or you'll feel better or you'll accomplish the task that you set out to do um and so learning that repeatedly, because, you know, initially in the military, the, di the discipline is imposed from on high that, you know, you better do this. Otherwise, you know, you'll get court-martialed or you'll be you know severely punished in some way. Uh, but then later, you know, over time, I gradually learned to impose it on myself and realized, oh, you know, even if in the short term it's painful or unpleasant, 
uh, in the long run, um, good things will happen if you inflict sort of short-term pain for, for long-term uh, goals. And so that was like sort of another sort of agentic realization of like, oh, you know, do these things, commit these actions, you know, your actions matter more than your words or how you feel. And then, you know, following those sort of led me later to you know, go go to college and develop the, the habits and the self-discipline and go on and get a PhD and so on. Write a book, write a PhD thesis, like, you know, all these sort of things. So, yeah, it's, I think it's, yeah, er, learning that very early is, is important, um, especially when you don't. Well, it, it, for me, it was really important because I didn't have it when I was a kid. I didn't have those. I didn't have anyone sort of looking over my shoulder to make sure I was doing my homework or make sure that I was doing the things that you needed to do. And so I learned those lessons maybe maybe later than many people do. On the category of rewards, one thing I've been thinking about recently that I don't know how relevant it is or if it's a limiting factor is internal locus of control versus external locus of control. Yeah. Are you needing an outside influence before you get started? Or do you just go from nowhere? It's kind of like leadership of your own. How do you go from one to the other? Or are people stuck as one and just you have to do the best you can with the way you're wired? Well, I think it's, it sort of depends on the context. So there is, you know, that's like a very famous um, framework from psychology, the internal versus external locus of control. You know, internal is are you self-driven and self-motivated versus external is do you need someone else to sort of put incentives and penalties in place for you to behave in a certain way? You know, I mean, it's I think it's an important distinction and it maybe will help you to predict certain things. I mean, people who have an internal locus of control do on average go on to be more successful. Um in their lives because they're self-driven and self-motivated. Um, but I would actually say in, in some ways, like having good influences and good environments and structure, it's, it's even more important for people with external locus of control because I didn't have that much of an internal locus of control when I, for example, when I first enlisted, um, I was just kind of this wayward, aimless teenager. And, you know, the military was this, you know, external force uh, that did kind of drill into me the things that I needed to do to become more conscientious and focused and disciplined and then, you know, kind of allowed me to become more internally driven in terms of locus of control. So, you know, I think like we do have, especially in like American society at large, that we do like the idea of like freedom and letting people do their thing and sort of leaving people alone. And I think like generally that's that's like a good kind of default position is like letting people, as long as you're not hurting anyone, do your thing. But I think when you when you implement that approach for kids, like kids actually do need some discipline, some control, someone looking out for them. I mean, if you let a kid completely have, you know, total freedom, they're just going to I mean, I had that I had, you know, almost complete freedom as a kid. And it just allowed me to make a lot of bad decisions. You know, I mean, I was, you know, I, I started drinking beer when I was five. I was drinking tequila when I was nine. I was smoking weed and cigarettes, nine, ten years old, taking pills. Like, you know, if, if you want to do those things when you're an adult and no one, you know, you're not hurting anyone and no one relies on you, you know, fine, you know, be, be, you know, be who you are. But when you're nine years old, um, you know, I just don't think that's like, that's not a good way to, to live. It's not, you know, healthy for kids to live that kind of life. And so it would be nice if we could be a bit more um, willing to say that, you know, there are better and worse ways for kids to exist in the world. You know, if we want to take a non-judgmental attitude to the choices adults make, fine. But then if there are kids involved, if they have children, if there, if there are people who rely on those adults, then I think we could be a bit more um, 
you know, we could be a bit more, I guess, judgmental or a bit more concerned with how things are going uh, for those young kids, because, you know, in the long run, those kids are going to grow up and end up living, you know, the same or worse lives that they're currently living as kids. I mean, so I talk about this. I had five close friends growing up and we were all doing the same things, you know, and I'm like, I'm the anomaly, you know, like I am the sort of outlier in that group. But the typical outcome of someone who grew up the way that we did, the sort of modal outcome is, you know, so of my five friends, two went to prison. Uh, one, one of my good friends was was shot to death when we were in high school. Um, you know, the other, and then, yeah, my other friends are kind of working menial jobs, um, kids with different women, and they don't see any of them. Um, you know, just kind of living that uh, carefree, irresponsible life. And again, like if you're just a single guy and you don't have kids and you don't have anyone relying on you, you know, do your thing. But once you have, you know, three kids from three different women, maybe it's time to be an adult and be someone who they can rely on instead of cutting off contact and, you know, trying to, I mean, I have, you know, now yeah, guys I went to high school with, they're like in their thirties now enrolled in community college, smoking a lot of weed, trying to sleep with 18 year olds. Like, you know, it's just, that's not a good life. Um, but that is the typical outcome of someone that grew up the way that we did. So it would be nice if we could sort of focus on, you know, the kids that they have are going to grow up the same way unless we can, you know, to some extent intervene and say, like, maybe there are better ways to raise kids and to think about the kind of environments they're growing up in. So, Is there something to the idea of enforcing or supporting structure early on in life kind of like the older generation tends to do until the person has enough structure such that they can base or put creativity on top of that or have freedom on top of that once the structure is already there does everybody have to pay the structure tax before they can blossom? The structure tax i yeah. like that yeah. um you know i don't think everybody does uh there are people who are just like sort of by nature uh self dis i mean I guess like kids, I don't know if you like you want to think about it in those like, you know, does an eight year old have to pay the structure tax, but just like, yeah, have some oversight, right? Like it would be good for little kids to have some parents around and to have their best interest in mind. Um, but I think so. That, I mean, that's this is, um, you know, maybe we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here, but I coined this idea of luxury beliefs. And I think one luxury belief that many kind of educated, upper middle class, conscientious people have is that you know because a certain way of life works for them that everybody should live that way too that you know if you're you know a, a highly educated person with comfortable material circumstances and you're earning money and you have a degree and you live a life of you know very little threat to your day-to-day -day existence then you can live in a structureless way you know, clock in and clock out whenever you want. You don't need much oversight if you're trying to do your job or get a task done. But most people aren't like that. You know, most people do need a bit of structure in their life um, and they need a bit of sort of oversight and supervision and those kinds of things. I mean, it just, you know, even if in the short term it's unpleasant, right? In the longer term, it will make their lives beneficial. I'm thinking of a friend of mine uh, that I went to high school with when we were when we were 19, he was working at Burger King. Uh, I was in the military, I was visiting home. So he was working at Burger King. He was talking about how he wanted more hours. He wanted a job that paid better. He just, you know, he wanted to sort of, at least this is, you know, this is what he claimed he wanted. 
And so we were at Applebee's as we were having this conversation. And I, I was like, why don't you apply? Like I saw like a help wanted or some kind of sign out front. This place is hiring. You know, why not fill out an application here? Or at least ask, like, are you um, hiring full-time workers? And at first he kind of, you know, he was like, rebuffed me. He's like, no, nah, this is stupid. No, I don't know. So I went up and I, I went up and got a, an application for him. And we, you know, we filled it out together at the table. And he got an interview. And then he got the job. And then on his first day, he just didn't go. And you know, I remember talking to him about this and he was like, yeah, I just didn't feel like it. You know, it's like, you know, I woke up, I was kind of high. I was kind of you know, bored thinking about work. I just didn't want to do it. And a couple of years later, he was riding his motorcycle, had someone on the back with him. He was drunk. He might have been high, too. And, uh, the pol you know, some police officer saw and started chasing him through the freeway. And my friend tried to outrun him on this motorcycle. He ended up crashing into uh, an on-ramp. And he survived with some minor scrapes and bruises. But the person who was on the back of the motorcycle, uh, like, fractured their skull and was in a coma. And, you know, it's not, it's not impossible to say that, like... Oh, and he ended up going to prison <laughs> as a result of that. Because that was, like, his third or fourth alcohol-related incident. Um that he was arrested for. So it's not impossible to say that if he'd had a bit more structure and discipline and oversight in his life, if, you know, someone was, you know, or if he had grown up with good habits and good discipline and someone telling him it's important to show up to work on time and get a job and, you know, sort of color within the lines, at least when you're young, um, that, you know, the person who he was riding with wouldn't have been so seriously injured he may not, my friend may not have gone to prison. Um, you know, he may have lived a very different life, but because he lived a completely structureless childhood and adolescence and early adulthood, um, you know, it's basically like whatever I feel in the moment is the right thing to do. If it feels good, do it. And that was enough for him. Um, whereas for most people, that's not the right <laughs> philosophy to life is, you know, if it feels good, well, reconsider. And is this, you know, what, what, what are the long-term consequences of this? Um, and again, like if you're, if you live a certain kind of life, upper middle class, educated, everything, like you probably don't even have that much of an urge to get drunk and ride a motorcycle in the first place. You know, maybe you have the urge to get high or drunk or something, but you're aware, right? Like, especially if you grow up with parents and you sort of have that structure in place of like, you know, you know, the long-term effects or the potential outcomes of drinking and riding a motorcycle. Um, so anyway, yeah, I think structure, structurelessness works for some people, but for most people it doesn't. It makes sense. I like your bringing up of luxury beliefs as well. There's something there, even with your motorcycle example, there's something to the idea that luxury beliefs is sort of like, if this is not exactly the way you bring it up, but just as an example, like Michael Jordan, not remembering how he started playing and then just saying things of like, just do this and this and this, let's say, and then the person starting there couldn't get there or somebody in a successful scenario, like, oh, I, I'm not able to meet people. And then let's say you, I don't use a podcast example, just bring them on your podcast. Well, I don't have one. Or like in the motorcycle example, the person often that uh, does the accident in a vehicle or causes it every single time, not every single time, quite often gets less injured than the other person that was in the other car that got hit or the person in the back that wasn't actually driving. 
There's something to the, you already got there and you're not bringing the ladder up for other people to get there as well. Mm-hmm. Luxury uh, beliefs have a bit of coldness to them because if you did pull people up to where you are actually smoothly, then there wouldn't be that gap. Yeah. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah. Well, so, so luxury beliefs, I, I coined this term in uh, 2019, a few years ago, luxury beliefs. I, I, I developed this when I was doing my PhD. Um, they're ideas and opinions that confer status on the upper class while inflicting costs on the lower classes. And people who are very affluent uh, hold a set of beliefs. It makes them look good. It sort of increases their prestige in the eyes of others. But then once those ideas get implemented into culture or into policy, this often has sort of catastrophic, detrimental downstream consequences for everyone else. You know, A key component of a luxury belief is that the believer is sheltered from the consequences of his or her belief. And so when you have someone like... Um, you know, someone saying, yeah, that you know, often what, what what happens with people who are upwardly mobile, someone like, you know, someone like me or someone like uh, you know, others who have gone on to, to some extent, manage to rise above their, their early experiences. Often we're surprised when we encounter people who uh, denigrate like the very principles that fueled our rise right like hard work doesn't matter or it's all it's all it all comes down to luck or who your family is or who you know or you know like oh basically like every and 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 often those same people themselves like even if they sort of started ahead of you you know they work hard too i mean it's very hard to actually be successful without working hard um regardless of what you may have heard like i because I've, i've seen this right like by now i've spent enough time around people who've graduated elite colleges and there are people who came from like maybe moderate middle middle upper middle class families who are extremely hardworking strivers who you know it still takes a ton of work to get into certain kinds of occupations and earn a certain level of income and so on and i also know the children of rich people who had a trust fund who had like you know instead of being at like the 90th percentile of socioeconomic status they're at the 99th percentile which is actually quite a big you know it's, it's a big enough difference to where if you're at the 90th percentile you still have to work for a living if you're at the 99th percentile you no longer have to work so the people with trust funds and they actually aren't that successful objectively speaking like yes they wear expensive clothes and have a trust fund and everything but like they didn't earn that um and they and they find it difficult actually to get a good job and to make money on their own and to get a high paying job because they they aren't willing to work hard or they're just you know they're they grew up a little bit too comfortable um and so point being there that you do have to work hard to be successful regardless of where you started and that even very rich kids who start at like you know at, at home plate um they can't get the jobs that they want if they're not willing to put in the effort for it um and so yeah this but but people in both of those categories you know upper middle class and and upper class people repeatedly i i encountered this attitude of like yeah you know well you know hard work and effort like you know meritocracy is a myth you know it's who you know or who you whatever you know the connections or it's about schmoozing and bullshitting and it's not you know the whole system is a scam meanwhile behind the scenes they're frantically working as hard as they possibly can and putting in you know 100 hours a week to get the promotion or whatever and to me there's like a duplicity there right like why are you telling the world that you don't have to work hard and then behind the scenes you're working as hard as you possibly can? Um, it just seems to me like, 
you know, when, when people ask me, especially like young kids, you know, if I, if I'm volunteering or tutoring or speaking with kids who grew up in similar circumstances that I did, you know, like, I'm not going to tell them, oh, you know, it's all just a scam and you don't have to work hard and it's who you know. And it's very demoralizing. I would never tell them that. I would say, like, if you want, like, if you want to get good grades, you're going to have to study. If you want to go to college, you're going to have to work hard and put in the effort and fill out the scholarship applications and, you know, hopefully try to form some decent connections with teachers or your guidance counselor. You're going to have to behave like you're, yeah, there's, there are, and you have to work twice as hard as other people to get to the same point as them because you started out so much earlier. I mean, it's, it's actually worse to spread the work doesn't matter message to people when work actually matters that much more for them because of how impoverished their early lives are. So, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's not, uh, yeah, I mean, it's like a, the epitome of a luxury belief, this downplaying of hard work and downplaying of effort. It is, it's something cold about it to me because it's saying I'm here, you're there. And then the actual way to get here, I'm not going to showcase that. And also I'm going to talk about something that sort of puts me in a bubble up here, similar to you had brought up an example with person that was from uh, parents that were together and then recommending people not get married or have children, but would still get married and have children. So you're doing this thing that will basically negate these genes from the next generation, but yours will continue on. <laughs> <laughs> I've never thought of it in those terms, but yeah. It's yeah. like, boom, pick out these adenines and thymines. We'll keep these guanines and cysteines. So there's something to that. And it's like a bubbling. It's it's like the opposite of what teachers do to take a student to the next thing. You have to take them through a track of learning. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And if you don't do that, well, they're stuck at that point. Is there a coldness to it? Is it them wanting to feel better about where they got to, trying to up where they got to and keep others out? Well, okay. So, yeah, I mean, the example you gave, I, I, I read about this experience, uh, which is that, you know, I was speaking to this young woman that I went to college with and she was somehow we got around to talking about marriage and family and stuff. And she was like, Oh, you know, monogamy and marriage. I mean, these are kind of outdated structures. They're kind of, you know, she used the term patriarchal and oppressive and these kinds of things. And I listening to her and I'm like, and this was like, I was still in college and I still hadn't like fully mastered the vocabulary of elite universities and all these terms. But one thing I just asked her was like, well, how did you grow up? Like, what was your early life experience like? <laughs> And she was like, well, you know, I, I was raised by my mom and my dad and like had, you know, that kind of conventional family life. And I said, okay, what, like, you know, once, you know, cause she was planning to go to law school, she was going to have a successful career and everything. I asked her like, well, what do you plan to do later? Like, are you going to have a family? Like, what would you like to do yourself? And she was like, well, I'll probably get married and get a husband and have a family that way, you know, but she was like, just because I'm going to do it doesn't mean everybody should have to do it. And basically what she was saying was i benefited from this sort of age-old institution of stable to two family structure that you know created the conditions for me to go to a place like yale i plan to carry the benefits of that tradition forward for my own children when i get married and have kids but my you know her official public position was you shouldn't do this thing right this thing that led me to be successful and that i plan to carry forward to make my children successful is actually you know I mean, is there an element of I, duplicity or is it, you know, because people ask me this, you know, are they, is it, is it conscious? Is it all just about, you know, are they sort of coldly calculating to get status or something? And, you know, I've thought about this for a long time. I think, I mean, there's not one answer. I would say that 
and this is just like, you know, if I were to put an estimate, it's hard to say, but 10 to 20%, I would say are actually like cold and calculating in these ways. And I've met these people who will, you know, sort of in private, you know, maybe after they've had a couple of cocktails, they'll say like, you know, there are winners and losers in this world. And sometimes you have to, you know, take certain strategies to weed out the competition. And <laughs> they talk in these terms. But that's, I think that's a kind of numerical minority. I would say 80% plus are not really thinking that deeply about it. They just realize like, oh, these are beliefs that are fashionable and prestigious and that are, you know, they seem to make me look good to my peers. And they sound on their surface, they sound good. You know, oh, you know, marriage is outdated and it makes you sound interesting and progressive or, you know, actually we live in this corrupt society where hard work doesn't matter and you know if you're if you're not doing well in your life it's not your fault and it's okay and you know it makes you sound like a sympathetic compassionate person um in the moment and they don't really think ahead like well okay well let's extrapolate what are the downstream consequences of if that belief were to spread throughout society and get to the point where people no longer feel like they can get ahead in their lives or people think that you know everywhere they turn it's like you know at the least marriage is questioned or more often like marriage is ridiculed or undermined or thought it thought to be outdated or something. I mean, it's one thing to have these fashionable beliefs if you grew up relatively well off and in a way that you didn't have to worry about day-to-day -day survival or whether your children would be successful. But for people who are struggling and trying to climb up that ladder, I mean, essentially you're kind of, you know, kicking it down or adding grease to the rungs and confusing people, right? Like, I'm, yeah, I, I'm thinking about, like, this the story that just came to mind was, you know, when I was, when I was in high school, I had, well, I had two jobs. Um, I was a dishwasher at this restaurant, I was a dishwasher and busboy, and I got this job as a bag boy at a supermarket because it paid a little bit more. And I remember I was nervous when I had to tell my restaurant manager that I was quitting my dishwashing busboy job to go work at this grocery store. And, you know, because I'd, I'd worked there and he and I had a good relationship and he was, you know, he looked out for me within, you know, within the workplace. And I told him about this and he was proud. And he was like, this is exactly what you want, Rob. Like you want each job you get to be better than the one you had before. And that's what you're doing. He's like, I know no one wants to be sweating their ass off in a you know steaming hot dish room in a restaurant and you know cleaning other people's leftovers and you know and it, yeah so you know, like I'd come home and my fingernails would smell like garlic and onions and I just you know it's it's kind of you know it's, it's disgusting uh no one wants to wash dishes you know for a living but you know it was it was, it was a good experience for me um but then yeah that that message that he gave he delivered to me was you know I'm proud of you that's a good thing but I could easily imagine, you know, some, you know, some highly educated person coming, you know, if, if they witnessed that interaction without knowing like how things would end up just like, you know, just so you know, you're, you're actually just working a dead end job and this other job, is it really so much better? You know, it's just another dead end job. You know, you're making, you know, this was, this is mid two thousands in California, you know, you're making six seventy five an hour and now you're making seven twenty five. Like, is it really such a big leap? you know, statistically, the odds are against you. And there's all these forces, these impersonal forces that are holding you back. And, you know, if I had, if I were to receive that message from, you know, prominent media outlets or people who 
uh, seemed to know what they're talking about, you know, experts and pundits and smart people. And they're just saying like, they're just trapped in a dead end cycle of poverty or something. I think that would have been demoralizing, but instead I was getting this good advice from my restaurant manager who himself was an ex felon, uh, who had lived a very hard life and knew sort of what, like how to get ahead, how to sort of correct the, the mistakes of your past and try to improve your circumstances. And, you know, I'm glad I listened to my restaurant manager who had spent time in prison rather than, you know, some pundit who, you know, got a lot of education from an expensive university. There's a theme that's very prevalent of you've seen all the different rungs of society struggle, people who have struggled, you in a good scenario, other people in a good scenario, high status, lower status, the effects on the person in those moments. How many rungs are there? And I once spoke about the meritocracy trap uh, many years ago with an author. And is there a lot of separation between the world of the bottom 50% versus the next 40% versus the next 9% versus the next 0.9% versus the top 0.1%? Are they all playing completely different games? Do mm -hmm. they c communicate uh, informatively to one another? I mean, not really um, in terms of the communication, right? Like we're just becoming more and more. I mean, we talk a lot about like po political polarization, which does exist, but I think there's a lot of class polarization too, that people who grow up in more blue collar kind of working class or poor environments, they, you know, they live one way of life and have a certain outlook. And then people who are highly educated and, you know, they, they just have different concerns. I mean, probably the average person who went to, especially as someone who went to like an expensive college and who works a white collar job, they've probably never had like a 20 minute conversation with someone who didn't get a bachelor's degree, right? Like this just, that's just how things are going now where you have this reshuffling and to some extent, you know, there's, there are, there's a political component here too, but I think a lot of it is, is, is class as well, where, um, you know, I, I criticize this idea in my book about, you know, I think I call it trickle down meritocracy or you could call it trickle down diversity which is this idea that, you know, if you, the, the belief seems to be at least among, you know, whatever you want to call them, the elite, the, the luxury belief class, I call them is as long as that top segment of society, you know, perfectly represents the demographics of America as a whole, then things are fine, right? Like as long as it's 50% women and this percent Asian and this percent that and the other, then, you know, then we've done our job and we have diversity or we have, representation or something and the point that i make in the book is like that's great for those people who were handpicked to be a part of that you know anointed class um but what about all of the other people who are struggling and what about all of the people who don't go on to you know obtain positions of influence or power or get a seat at some expensive college i mean you know it's the yeah often what actually ends up happening is that these elite institutions i mean speaking specifically about colleges is that they strip mine talented people out of their communities and then those people end up going to live in cities with other college graduates and they don't end up going back home and and again like you know i'm not i'm not like condemning them or blaming them like i'm not going to go back to red bluff california where i grew up um but if the original idea if the original intent of these institutions was to somehow 
you know, it, it is like this trickle down thing of like, oh, if we just, you know, put enough people for marginalized people into the elite, then those benefits will somehow trickle down to everyone else. And this will, you know, lift lift all boats or something. But instead, like there's no evidence of this, right? Like marginalized communities are still struggling. People who are poor are still poor. Like just because maybe someone who kind of looks like them went to Harvard like, what does that mean for you? Like, you know, what does it mean? You know, like, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm trying to translate some of my experiences to help other kids who grew up in foster care or something. But like, just at a, you know, just at a sort of superficial level, the fact that I went on to get a degree or something like, how is that? Like, what is the line between that and kids who are currently in the foster system? Right? Like, I don't understand why this is, you know, instead of focusing on trickle down diversity why don't we actually sort of look at what's going on in these communities how we can improve them what we can do you know in it you know not not instead of helping them financially but alongside that what are some good habits some good customs some good pieces of advice uh for how you should live your life that will you know what what actions can you take that will help you to to be happier and to live a more sort of flourishing and satisfying life um and yeah, are they playing different games? That's an interesting question. I mean, yeah, kind of, right? Like, I, I yeah, there, there are like, there's a great book that was written decades ago by Paul Fussell called Class, a guy through the American status system. And he talks about how within each, I mean, you know, this, this is a simplification to some extent, but basically he says that within each class, the ingredients that indicate your position um, are different. And so for the and roughly speaking, like the lower class, the poor and the working class, that bottom segment, it's about money, you know, and it is kind of a money game of like, you know, do you have a nice car? Can you afford to buy a boat? What does your house look like? Those kinds of things. Um, and I remember when I was growing up, it was like a lot of concentration and discussion about money. Um, you know, some of my coworkers play the lottery. My mom still plays the lottery. My adoptive mom, you know, she has this they have this like pool at her workplace where like every week it's someone's job to like buy tickets for the group and whatever. And like somehow they, I, I don't know how they've decided to divvy it up, but if someone wins the lottery, they like will divide it among the seven of them or something. And so, so it's about money. And then the middle class, Paul Fussell says, class is about education. It's like, you know, did you go to the right college or, you know, are you, you know, did, where did you get your degree? Do you have a master's degree? You know, how, like how level, you know, how many degrees do you have and which, which institutions did you attend? And there's a lot of preoccupation about college. Um, and then for the upper class, uh, class is primarily about your tastes, your customs, your habits, how you carry yourself, um, the kind of restaurants you like, the kind of cuisines you enjoy, the, um, entertainment that you consume sort of having intricate and expensive interests and tastes and hobbies and you know these aren't like perfectly rigid right like the upper class still cares about money and the middle class still cares to some extent about taste but these are kind of the primary ways that classes are distinguished under this framework and i think there's there's quite a bit of truth to it because if you if you're if you're like born to like the rockefellers or the kennedys or something and you don't go to an expensive college and you yourself don't work and you're actually like objectively not very wealthy but you have spent your whole childhood and adolescence immersed in the 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 sort of uh the behaviors of the gentry of like being a well-mannered person who knows a lot about you know art and wine and history and these kinds of things even if you yourself you know objectively have like a low balance on your bank account and maybe you didn't go to the most expensive college in the world that people will within that social category within the upper class will still recognize you as one of them Whereas 
if you're in the upper class and you see some, you know, nouveau riche, you know, person who, you know, some like great Gatsby-esque figure who rises up and, you know, gets the degrees and gets the money and to some extent maybe at least superficially manages to look like a member of the upper class, they won't fully consider you as part of them. They'll be able to tell there are certain subtle errors in the way that you speak or the way you carry yourself or the way that you dress or the way that you think or the, you know, your table manners, something along those lines to where they'll be able to pinpoint like, oh, you're actually, you know, you're a, you're a new, what is it? A, you're an arrivista, you're a parvenu, you're a newly arrived, you know, you're not truly one of them. Your kids can be, right? Like this is one of the things that Fussell and Pierre Bourdieu and other sort of sociologists of class write about is like, you are the class that you're born into. Your kids can join the next class if you, if you have achieved some upward mobility uh, and you enroll your kids into the right schools and sort of start them from birth on that track, they can join that upper class. But, um, but you yourself can never fully uh, be a part of it. That's like the, it wasn't in your zero to 10 years old, so you don't get to have that. But if it's in there zero to 10 years old, okay. <laughs> they actually fully believe it. We don't know if you fully believe it in that case. Yeah, yeah. That's funny. When you mentioned strip mining earlier, a set of qualities, it made me think of something slightly segued, but is society, as it's become very specialized and segmented, have we, I, I call it vacuuming, but like vacuumed or strip mined everything. So like the best looking people in society were scouted and there are some modeling thing. And then the most intelligent people were scouted and they're in the tech company and the, whatever, all the features one by one. So that if you're regular part of common society, so much has been vacuumed out. And then the best sales is in Amazon's workforce to get the best deals. Like everything one by one has been pulled from society such that what does that leave us in the broad range of public society? Is there something to that? Yeah, it's interesting. Like, I think there is, um, you know, especially in America, you know, like this hyper efficient capitalist system. And, I, you know, I like capitalism, whatever, but like there it's not costless. Right. Like it does have effects. Like once you have a completely um, free system where people can make their own decisions and associate and make their own choices in life, you know, there's uh, there's this political philosopher um, who uh was at Harvard back in the 90s. I think he, he's, he's passed away now, Robert Nozick, but he had this, the bumper sticker idea was liberty upsets patterns, which is like when you give people freedom, like things are just going to move around very quickly and however, like whatever the starting point happens to be in society, as soon as you let people make their choices, you know, inequality is naturally going to arise. People are going to, you know, people with talents are going to monetize them. They're going to earn a lot of money. People who don't have those same level of talents are going to be more impoverished. You know, the power laws and the, the you know some people call it the matthew principle i mean these things will take effect and so i think in america you see it more so than in europe or other places where yeah, if you're if you're a good looking person you learn very quickly that you're good looking and yeah maybe modeling scout or maybe social media or you become an influencer or you just discover that there is a way for you to use that um you know unearned uh, attribute to you know, rise up and earn some money and get out of wherever you are. Uh, if you're very smart or talented or creative or interesting in some way, you know, now, especially with, with uh, the internet and everything else, right? Like power laws reign where people are, are cer certain people are becoming very successful and others are falling behind or are unable to, um, to fully sort of 
make their way, you know, you know, just the, the inequality sort of seems to be to be magnifying in some sense. Um, I don't know if that's, you know, is, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, it's it's good in the sense that people are able to earn money and capitalize on their talents. But, you know, I do think like there is room for a safety net. There is room for, you know, if you are born unlucky or particularly untalented or unattractive or something, that there should be something available for you. And this is like this is like one of those things where, you know, we, we, we touched on this before about this preoccupation with these, you know, extrinsic conventional badges of success. It's like the guys that I grew up with, you know, I think that the ones that went to prison, if they'd had different upbringings and different lives, they probably wouldn't have been incarcerated. If they'd had different upbringings, would they have gone to Yale? Honestly, if I'm being completely honest, probably not. Um, but, but that's okay. I mean, just because you don't have the whatever, like just because you weren't like, you know, you, you, you were not born, uh, you didn't earn, you didn't earn those things. You're born with certain things. And to some extent there's environment and all these factors, but by and large, a lot of the talents and attributes that are monetizable that we have, we didn't earn them in some, some sort of objective sense. Uh, but there are other ways to achieve satisfaction in life. And it seems like more and more, um, we are sort of crowding out those other sources or pillars of meaning. Um, I made this point in one of my essays about luxury beliefs that the sort of denigration of religion or family, for example, that if you're not a super smart or a super talented or super successful person in some professional material sense, um, at least, you know, historically, you could still sort of derive satisfaction uh, even if you work a job that isn't especially exciting, you could say like, well, I go to work every day and I'm providing for my family and people rely on me and I have my spouse and my kids or I'm taking care of my kids and they love me and I'm taking, making sure that they're being raised properly and that they're, they feel loved. Um, you can derive a lot of satisfaction from that. But often, you know, more and more, it seems like we're sort of denigrating the importance of marriage. We're denigrating the importance of child rearing. Um, you know, I think religion historically has served an important function for people uh, to derive some satisfaction. Um, you know, if you're, you know, uh, talented or creative or born lucky in some way, you can derive satisfaction from your work. You can live, you can have like a creative class job. You can be a writer or a podcaster or whatever. Like you can sort of work the kind of job that seems to impress people. Um or you can partake, you know, if you're born rich and you don't have to work, you can still, you can travel, you can de develop fun hobbies, you can become a photographer, you know, whatever, an amateur mixologist or something. You can find ways to like seek fulfillment in your life. But if you're born unlucky and not particularly wealthy and all these kinds of things, what are your options before you to live a, a fulfilling life? Um, I think it used to be, and to some extent you can still do this, is, you know, to find, find a partner you know, find some satisfaction in your community and your relationship and your church and your, you know, there are sort of small scale ways to do this. Um, and those, yeah, the sources of meaning seem to be shrinking more and more. Uh, and part of this may be what you had mentioned earlier, that if you're born with any kind of special talent or whatever, you end up leaving those places. You're either not born there or if you are, you leave and then you forget what it's like there. You forget what life is like for most of those people and what their options are. And, you know, there's a lot of discussion about like, you know, just, you know, I mentioned the social safety net earlier, which I think is important, but like UBI or just like, to me, it just sounds like, 
you know, almost like that Marie Antoinette, let them eat UBI, you know, like let them eat cake, right? Like just throw them 1500 bucks a month, give them some money in their account and, you know, let just stop complaining, you know, but actually, you know, like having money deposited into your account doesn't immediately translate into life satisfaction. It can help, um, you know, it's better than not having it, but there are other pathways to living a, a life that leads to, to happiness and to a life that you feel proud to, to have lived. The point you just brought up reminds me of one time Tupac said that I can't live in the city where I grew up. Why? Because they'll rob me. I have to move to this city because now I'm this. So I can't even live with the people that I grew up with because now I'm of an upper class. So I couldn't even be around them. It's like a segmentation that happens. Mm. I have like 9,000 other topics that I would <laughs> like to include, but we'll leave those for a future discussion. Mm. One last one I want to include your book to be released getting it out there is it a smooth process what does that involve any hiccups along the way uh yeah so my book um it's out february 20th um you know it's been kind of five plus years in the making uh writing this book and you know going through the whole sort of publishing process um you know there have been a few hiccups along the way writing writing it was difficult but you know it ended up coming together but yeah, more recently, man, like I, I've been trying to, you know, speaking with, with uh, my publisher and agent and trying to, you know, maybe do some, some book events. Um, we were thinking about doing one, yeah, here, here uh, in California and then maybe another one in, in New York. And my publisher, they're telling me they're having a difficult time um, getting bookstores interested in hosting my book, which I find very interesting. You know, like they're... There are authors who are doing book events who, you know, they they don't seem to have quite the same kind of online footprint or following, uh, but maybe they tick the right boxes. Um, you know, they their maybe outlook is more flattering to the people who run the bookstores. And to me, it honestly just feels more like, you know, what I mentioned before about how if you, you, you regardless of, of how you of what you have achieved in your life. If you started from a certain point, you're never going to be fully accepted, right? So you can be someone like me, you know, growing up in foster homes, serving in the military, somehow managing to like break myself in half to get into Yale and then to Cambridge and then to get uh, a mainstream book publisher um, and write this book and try to communicate these difficult early life experiences of living in the foster homes and everything. Um, yeah, the people who run bookstores are uninterested in that story, um, despite the fact that I could probably draw like a relatively large audience uh, because, you know, I'm not one of them and probably never will be. So, yeah, that's just that's just how, how things stand right now uh, in this country. And it's it's kind of sad um, because I think, you know, it's, it's not, you know, I don't think it's going to necessarily long term affect book sales, you know, anything like that. Like doing a bookstore event is not going to be like a, game-changing whatever but it would have been nice to have a venue there to meet some readers and meet people who maybe would like to ask questions or maybe people who wouldn't ordinarily hear about stories like this i mean in the end i would like to do um, events maybe for some foster care organizations or boys and girls clubs or after school programs like i want to be able to talk to you know directly to kids who have had similar experiences to me um but yeah i just thought yeah let's do a bookstore event it's an obvious thing all right i'm an author i wrote a book let's do something at a bookstore <laughs> But apparently they don't like the book. They think maybe it's too controversial or polarizing. 
um, which is sad, but yeah, that's where things stand. Um, you know, if you're, if you're an outsider as an author, um, even if you would think that maybe, you know, they, they would, uh, be interested in stories from, you know, outsiders and people who've had unique experiences. Um, even if they say that, that's not always the case. A duplicitous nature among the world. <laughs> <laughs> there, that exists. Yes. Classic. Rob, author of Trouble, I'd like to thank you for having joined on this discussion and a future one so I can go over the notes I didn't go over this time. All right. Thanks, Armin. And we are out.